Well, good morning again, friends. Uh, I really do genuinely miss being with you. I, one thing I didn't know I would miss, but I really miss the ambient noise in the room. That's my tactful way of saying the hustle and bustle of just people moving around, but also the kids and the ambient noise. It is eerily quiet in here. Uh, and yeah, I miss, I miss that. But more than that, I miss just being with you and uh, long for the day when we can do that again. This morning, we're going to be uh, continuing on our series through Acts. We're going to be looking at the first missionary journey, or at least the first part of the first missionary journey uh, by Paul and Barnabas. And throughout our time as a church so far, we have considered what does it mean to be a missionary? We've asked that question. As a church, what does it mean to be on mission? Are we missionaries? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a missionary as this. A person undertaking a mission, and especially a religious mission. I mean, we look for our definitions about our calling as Christians from the Bible, but I thought it would be helpful to look at what Merriam-Webster had to say. So a person undertaking a mission, especially a religious mission. A few weeks ago, Josiah preached on uh, one of our identities that we are multipliers. We are multipliers. He talked about how we're commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. Our mission is to make disciples. And so by definition, we are a person or a people undertaking a mission to make disciples, especially a religious mission. I mean, making disciples. When we think of the word missionary or or the person missionary, we often think of uh, someone that goes overseas to do missions work, an overseas long-term missionary. Is that a missionary? Yes, that is a missionary. In our passage today, that's what we see. We see Paul and Barnabas getting on a boat, crossing some water, going on mission. So I'm not saying that that is not a missionary. But if you are a Christian, whether you are crossing an ocean, whether you're crossing your city, whether you're crossing your backyard, or whether you're crossing your living room, you are a missionary. You are on a mission to make disciples. You are a sinner saved by grace, carrying the message of the glorious gospel to those that need to hear it. So, you are a missionary sent by the Holy Spirit. St. Francis of Assisi has a very uh, well-known quote. The quote is this, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Now, to talk about this a little bit, there seems to be very little evidence, if not, there's no evidence, really, that, say, that says that St. Francis of Assisi said this. He probably did not say this. Uh, he was a guy who spent almost his whole life preaching with words. He preached hundreds of sermons a year. So he probably never said this. The sentiment, though, is great uh, of the, the idea behind this. You know, our words... Uh, or our actions should reflect our words. And St. Francis of Assisi did say things along that line, saying, hey, our actions, how we show love, uh, show the gospel, should be the same as we share the gospel. But I think it's an unhelpful quote uh, because it can be a bit of a cop-out, really, to actually sharing and proclaiming the gospel. So I think it's not all that helpful of a quote. Gospel proclamation is God's ordained method for gospel spread. It is not a fallback. Gospel proclamation is not what we do when 
showing love, showing the gospel isn't working. Gospel proclamation is what we do as missionaries on mission. And so this morning, like I said, we're going to be considering the first missionary journey in Acts. And I hope that we can learn and apply what it means to be a missionary, that there is an element of proclamation, a big element of proclamation, an element of opposition, and some challenges uh, that come with that. And so our big idea this morning, our big idea is this, through thick and thin, we are missionaries sent by the Holy Spirit. Through thick and thin, we are missionaries sent by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I pray that as we work through this passage, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would convict, convict us by your word, that you would encourage us uh, by your word. Pray that the gospel, even this morning, would be preached loudly and clearly with all boldness. That those who don't know you would hear about you. That those uh, who do know you would be edified and more than anything, that you would be glorified. Help us learn and apply these truths. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapters 13 and Acts 14 are the story of the first missionary journey. Today we're going to be looking at Acts 13, and Lord willing, next week we're going to be looking at chapter 14, which is, so it's sort of like a part one, part two. We're going to trace the steps of Paul, who up to this point we've been calling Saul, or I've probably accidentally been calling Paul. He didn't have a a name change per se, but Paul was his uh, Roman name. And so when, from now on, when he's on mission, when he's interacting with the Greek world, he goes by Paul. And so I'll probably be calling him Paul most of the time, but you'll see it, inter- it flips between Paul and Saul, even in the text this morning. Uh, we'll also be looking at Barnabas and John Mark, who's uh, with them for at least part of it. For a little bit of context this morning, chapter 13, we're going to be looking at two main scenes, two main scenes, two main stories that covers some real distance in time and geography. And so I say all this to make sure that we don't get lost in the weeds. Even in my study of this, it's, it's, we see a lot of parallels between these two stories, and it's easy to kind of get jarred up. So here we go. Two stories, two main scenes over a span of geography. And so Kyle's going to throw a map up on the screen. Hopefully you'll be able to see it, just to get a little bit of geographic context for where we are. So they're going to be starting on the right of the map there. They're starting in Antioch in Syria. So it's on the right of the map. Uh, If you want a refresher about the church in Antioch, this afternoon, pull out your Bibles, and uh, I'd encourage you to read through Acts 11, 19 through 30, and 13, 1 through 3. We went through that a couple of weeks ago, but if you want uh, a review of the context of where they're coming from, where these missionaries are being sent out of, check back there. So they start in Antioch. They head from Antioch to Seleucia, near Antioch, and then they go to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. So you should see that right in the middle of your map there. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not seeing this uh, or you're not able to see it, most of your Bibles probably have the maps in the back. And so what we're looking at is the first missionary journey as you're flipping through. And so they head out of uh, the port city of Seleucia. They head to Cyprus, and this is where Barnabas is from. And today in our passage, we're going to be uh, spending, or you'll see, uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 5 through 12. That's where they are, the island of Cyprus, right in the middle of the screen. Next, from there, they board a ship. They head uh, up to Perga in Pamphylia. That's, so that's present-day Turkey. 
And this is where John Mark leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. So that happens in uh, verses 11, or uh, sorry, 13 and 14. And then from there, Paul and Barnabas, they take a hundred mile hike in the land, uh, inland, sorry, to Antioch in Pisidia. So they head inland. Uh, it's a rough trip. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but this is where the rest of the passage is, verse 14 to 52. And so thank you for bearing with me there. I think it's helpful to have a little bit of geographic context to see where they're going. And so scene one is on the island of Cyprus. Scene two is once they're in Pisidian Antioch. Now, I get that it's confusing. There's more than one Antioch, but there's, there's a lot more than two even. But these are the two we're dealing with this morning. So one in Syria, one in the Pisidian Antioch, which is in Galatia. And so that gives us the where. We're going to be traveling this journey with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark for part of the way. We're going to be going through it a little bit slower now, and we're going to see what they were doing. We know where they were doing it. Now, what were they doing? Well, first, proclamation and opposition in Cyprus. And that's our first point. Proclamation and opposition in Cyprus. What were these guys doing? They were proclaiming, and they were being opposed. So let's read Acts chapter 13, verses 4, and we'll stop for now at verse 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so we see Paul and Barnabas, they land in Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, and right away we see them proclaim the gospel. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. And then next, we're introduced to two characters and two very contrasting reactions to the good news. Two characters, two reactions to the good news. First is the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. This is the Roman governor of Cyprus. And we can see that he's, uh, Luke describes him as an intelligent person, even though he keeps this Bar-Jesus magician guy around. But he, he's a real seeker. You know, he, he summons Paul and Barnabas to come and share the word of God with him. And so he's searching, he's seeking. He's a man of uh, certainly a lot of power and nobility in this time. But he's eager to hear the gospel. Then there's this other guy, like I said, Bar-Jesus. He's a false prophet. He's a magician. Now, 
I know we've covered magicians before. If you were there, you know that I think magic is super cool, magic tricks. Uh, but this Bar-Jesus guy is a lot less like David Copperfield and a lot more uh, like someone that's really practicing the dark arts and divination. Luke describes him as a false prophet. Now, his name means son, son of salvation, uh, son of the Savior. He is opposed to this message of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are bringing. He's opposed to the message. Uh, it's a contrast from Sergius Paulus. He's trying to actually turn Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, away from the message. Maybe he's worried about losing his influence. Maybe he's worried about losing his power. But he tries to steer him away. But we see, I, I think it's really important that we see these two contrasting people when they sh show up and they start preaching the gospel. And it's a good reminder that even if we're clearly and faithfully making the gospel known, some will receive this message and others will reject it. And so consider that in your own life. Your job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. But God is in control of who will receive that message and, and who will reject it. Next, we see how Paul manages this Bar-Jesus or Elamist guy. Elamist meaning magician. Right? He's magic man. That's what they're calling him. And Paul gives him a sharp rebuke. He gives him strong words. Right? He flips the script on his name, being son of the Savior. He's saying, you are the son of the devil. You're trying to lead people astray. Uh, strong words for uh, people that lead others astray. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is harsh language, but it is reckless and evil what this Bar-Jesus guy is trying to do. He's trying to steer this Sergius Paulus guy away from the gospel. So again, some reject, but others are seeking. We see there's an opportunity that opens up, and these guys don't miss a beat. Paul and Barnabas, they preach the gospel. Now, your life circumstances may look very different. You may never be summoned by the mayor or the premier. You will, though, have opportunities to give a reason for the hope that you have. Don't miss a beat when it comes. Those opportunities will come. We see God was working in Sergius Paulus's heart. Don't be surprised when God does the same thing to those people that are around you. It might not be so presented that someone sits down and says, tell me about the hope that you have. But everyone you meet is trying to find satisfaction. Everyone you meet is trying to put up an idol in their life to fill of the void that they're missing. And these idols look different for everyone. Some people, well, everyone's looking for meaning, but some people look for meaning in their career. Some people look for meaning uh, in their possessions, in their money, in their relationships. Others look to mysticism. Others look to other religions. But everyone is left empty. Like the poets Keith Richards and Mick Jagger say, we're all left saying, I can't get no satisfaction. And so look for these open doors where idols are exposed. Seek these open doors where idols are exposed and share the hope that you have in that darkness.
I have missed that open door way too often, I confess. But one time that uh, I experienced this, I was buying, I lo- a lot of you know I like doing some woodworking, and woodworkers know you pay a lot for wood when you go to certain places, but you can get good deals if you look on Facebook Marketplace or Kijiji. And so I can't remember what it was, whether it was Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace, but I saw a good deal. A guy was selling a whole pile of really nice maple, the same maple that this pulpit is made out of. And so I went to get the wood, and there was way more than I thought. And so I had to come back another time with a bigger vehicle to get the wood, to get all this maple. And so I went home. I said, hey, can I come back tomorrow? Yeah, sure. So I came back the next day, and he was waiting in his uh, vehicle. It was outside of like an industrial park area. And he gets out of his, his van, and he says, hey, man, I think I figured it out. I was like, what? What? And I was feeling pretty tired. I just wanted to get the wood and get out of there. And he's, I think I figured it out. What did you figure it out? The meaning of life. I think I figured out the meaning of life. And I'll tell you, every part of me wanted to say, nice, man, like, where's my wood? I wanted to just move on. And too often in my life, I have let that door slam closed on my face. But I just took the time there to say, what What's the meaning of life? And he went on to explain this whole New Age mysticism thing that he thought he had found the meaning of life. Uh, And and in all honesty, I think he was trying to convert me into whatever he was going on about. But it was an incredible opportunity for us to stand in a cold parking lot for well over an hour. And I was able to share the gospel with him. And we were able to really talk about things. And so in your own life, pray for those opportunities to open. When you pray for them, you will be amazed at how often that door swings open. And don't miss a beat when they come. Know, though, that some will accept, others will reject. But rest in the fact that God does the saving work. And so they uh, proclaim the gospel. They are opposed in Cyprus. Next, they run into some challenges in Perga. So they head from the island of Cyprus to Asia Minor inland. Uh, And in just a few verses, we see a few challenges that are faced. So challenges in Perga. The first being relational challenges. Relational challenges. Now, we don't know why John Mark left. In verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You know, maybe John Mark had doubts. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he thought he would be more, maybe it was noble. Maybe he thought he would be more productive elsewhere. Either way, though, we know that this split, uh, this uh, leaving of John Mark wasn't on the best of terms. Uh, later, a few chapters later in Acts, we'll see Barnabas later tries to convince Paul to bring John Mark back with him. And Paul reacts negatively. He says, hey man, he bailed on us when we had work to do. And so it's a good reminder that faithful work, faithful gospel proclamation doesn't mean smooth sailing. There's relational challenges that arise. The good news, though, is that conflict doesn't always result in failure. We see that Mark finished well. John Mark finished well. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
Paul's last letter to Timothy, Paul was opposed to this John Mark guy, but in his last letter to Timothy, uh, he asks him to bring Mark with him. He says that he was useful for the ministry. So conflicts can and will arise, but restoration is possible. And so our next, uh, we see relational challenges. Our next challenge in Perga that we see here is physical challenges. Now it's not stated explicitly in the passage, but we see in verse 14, uh, after John Mark leaves, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now that seems like just a little kind of anecdotal verse there. But there's a hundred miles between those two locations. And in those hundred miles, there is rough Taurus mountains. There, it's a barren area. It's often flooded by mountain streams. It was notorious for bandits. Even the Romans couldn't get these bandits other, under control. So that was a tough slog. Maybe that's what discouraged John Mark from going further. But part of doing the work of a missionary is doing the work. You may be called to walk across your yard to share the gospel, but you may also be called to walk across tough, flooded, barren, bandit-filled mountain ranges to make the gospel known. Maybe it's not a a physical challenge in that way. Maybe it's uh, your reputation. Maybe it's uh, your financial security. Maybe it's your possessions. But no matter what, living on mission is going to cost something. And you read the rest of Acts, read the rest of the New Testament. There is, it's far from the American dream. Look at those that have gone before us through church history. Look at Charles Spurgeon. Look at Martin Luther. Look at William Tyndale. Look at Amy Carmichael. Look at Jim Elliott. Look at Charles Simeon. There is physical, mental, emotional trials and threats. These are very real. But Acts 13, passage we're going through today, gives us a picture of grace-enabled, spirit-empowered endurance. So challenges will come. And so they've proclaimed the gospel. They've been opposed in Cyprus. They've had relational and physical challenges in Perga. And now they make it through the mountain range to Pisidian Antioch. So that's our next point. Proclamation and opposition in Pisidian Antioch. And right away again, what do they do? They proclaim the gospel. Verse 14, we said, But when they went from Perga, came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, Listen. The door swings wide open, right? They head to the synagogue. They say, this is a good place to start, right? These people believe the Old Testament. The door swings wide open. They say, what do you have to share? And Paul goes for it. And his sermon spans over the next 25 verses. This is a sermon a lot like Peter's at Pentecost. It's a lot like Stephen's before his death. We see in this sermon three sections. We see uh, a large section of Old Testament history. So that's verses 16 through 25. We see the second section, God's provision in Jesus. That's verses 26 through 37. 
And then we see Paul invite a response in verses 38 through 41. Those are the three sections. Old Testament history, God's provision in Jesus, and he invites a response. Now, Paul knows his audience, right? They go to a Jewish synagogue, says they sat down. They're asked, hey, if you have something to share, share it. And he knows his audience. He knows they're in a Jewish synagogue. He knows that they know the Old Testament, but they haven't connected the dots from the Old Testament to their long-awaited Savior in Jesus. This is great application for us in our own evangelism. I want to be clear. The gospel is and must be unchanging. Must be unchanging. We cannot change the gospel. But the way we present the gospel can change and should change. Imagine sharing the good news with someone who grew up in the church and knows all the stories. That's one audience. But imagine sharing the gospel with someone who didn't know one thing about the Bible. It just subtly changes the way that, that we present things. But the gospel is unchanging. And Paul, he's an expert in this. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, when he talks about his ministry, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And we see through the rest of Acts that this is really what he does. Depending on who his audience is, he presents the gospel in a way that would be helpful and clear to them. And so, in preaching to the Jews, he starts in the Old Testament. He talks about how God has cared for his people. He emphasizes so much God's active hand in it. He says, God brought you out of Egypt. He gave them their land, gave them judges, gave them kings. God has been actively working throughout history. God is in control. God doesn't do random. And so as he works through this Old Testament history, he gets to King David. And then Paul jumps right to Jesus. Jesus, the promised Savior, the descendant of David. And he appropriately drives to Jesus. We can learn that in our own gospel presentation. We need to present Christ. He presents to the Jews here a long-awaited Savior that has come. He shares, in verse 24, a message of salvation. Uh, In verse 32, the good news. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus came fulfilling biblical prophecy to redeem humanity, to live a sinless life, to come as a human, as a man, to live a sinless life that we never could. He says the world rejected him, fulfilling biblical prophecy, and killed him, a cursed death on a tree. Jesus died the death that we deserved lived the sinless life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved. The only person in history that didn't deserve that death, he died. He bore the weight of sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Let's read, starting in verse 35 through 39. It says, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he has served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And so Paul contrasts David, who died and stayed dead, with Jesus, who died and did not stay dead. And by, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The payment for sin had been paid in full. There was a way made for man to be right with God. We could now be freed or justified from the curse of sin. Impossible by good deeds. Impossible by following the law, the law of Moses. There's nothing we could do. This is the one solution to the world's biggest problem. So stop trusting in cheap remedies. Trust in Christ alone. That's what he proclaimed to this audience here, and that's what I proclaim to you. Stop trusting in cheap remedies. Trust in Christ alone. Turn and repent from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ died to save you. Right after this, Paul warns, uh, he quotes from Habakkuk 1.5, not to harden your heart, not to scoff at this message. So I'd say that to you. Don't scoff at this message. Stop trying to save yourself and stop creating a narrative that you are beyond saving. Paul, the guy preaching this sermon, not that long ago in our story here, he was persecuting Christians. He approved of the execution of Christians. He was dragging them out of their homes to be put in jail and put to death. So you are not beyond saving, but trust in Christ alone. So Paul and Barnabas proclaim the gospel in Pisidian Antioch, and they also prepare for opposition. We see a similar story to what we saw in the first scene. Verse 43 and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so just like before, some accept, some reject the message. Paul continues Sharing the gospel, though. He says the gospel is for all. In response to this pushback from the Jewish leaders, he goes to the Gentiles. Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So God does the saving work. We're reminded of this again. Our job, Paul and Barnabas' job, is to make the gospel known. 
God will do the heavy lifting. God does the saving of souls. The second half of verse 48 there is so important. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is such a good reminder that God does the heavy lifting. God does the work of soul saving. So we see some accept, some reject. They proclaim the gospel, and now they persevere with the Holy Spirit's power. Like we looked at with the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas earlier, we see that they're sent by the Holy Spirit. At the very beginning of our passage there, well, even a little bit before what we had covered in the last sermon about the Church of Antioch, verse 2 of chapter 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul, uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. They were listening to the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, at least what Luke records, they don't get a roadmap of exactly where to go. Maybe there's uh, a pragmatic logic behind this. Maybe they say, hey, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Let's go to Cyprus. All right, let's do our thing in Cyprus for a while. Oh, Paul's from Asia Minor. Let's go to Asia Minor. Oh, it makes sense. Let's start in the synagogues. That's where the Jews congregate. They know the Old Testament. Maybe there's an element of practicality there. But the Spirit says go, and they went. And so consider in your own life, your own identity as a missionary. If you're a Christian, where are you sent to go? Who is in your life that needs to hear the good news? What about as a community group? If you're in a community group, consider this as you consider what your mission focus is. Who are the people that your CG is being, are being sent to? Who, who are the people that God has placed in your life that need to hear the gospel? What means do you have to share the gospel with them? Consider that, like Paul and Barnabas. And so they're sent out by the Holy Spirit and they persevere with the Holy Spirit's power. At the very end of our passage, uh, verse 50, it says, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up, they, uh, it says they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They're driven out of town. And what do they do? They shake the dust off their feet and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This kind of perseverance is only possible by the Holy Spirit's power. Only possible by the Holy Spirit's power. And I'm with you if you're feeling inadequate. If you're saying, this is a standard I can't measure up to. Paul and Barnabas were inadequate. I mean, we talked about how much of a disaster Paul was before he faithfully followed Christ and faithfully proclaimed the gospel. Barnabas seems like a pretty stand-up dude, but he was a sinful person like you and me. But they had the Holy Spirit. The power that Jesus promised at the beginning of Acts in as he rose and ascended into heaven, saying, I'll be with you always. In Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That's the same Holy Spirit that gave these guys the zeal and perseverance that they had. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. If you're a Christian, you have that same Holy Spirit. And it's a good reminder 
that we're weak. It's important to know that, that we can't do it on our own. 1 Corinthians 1, 25-29 says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's a good reminder for us as we consider what it means to persevere with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, many of you know, lo- know that I love biographies. I find them so inspiring and encouraging to look at those that have gone before us, lived a missional life uh, before us, whether overseas or not. And this passage should evoke the same response. It's a true story of Paul and Barnabas on this first part of their first missionary journey. We should be encouraged and inspired as we consider what it means to proclaim the gospel, as we consider what it means to be opposed in our message, as we consider what it means to to run into relational challenges, physical challenges. We consider what it means to be sent by the Holy Spirit and persevere with the Holy Spirit's power. If you're not a Christian and you're listening in this morning, I would encourage you, just like Paul encouraged his audience here, Consider freedom in Jesus, freedom that can't be found in anything else. Look to him and find rest for your soul. You want to talk more about that, please reach out to me. I would love to chat more about what that looks like. I'd love to, to get a Bible in your hands. That you can, you can look at this story. You can look at these truths. Consider the hope that we have. If you're a Christian... I'd ask you, can you explain the gospel? Do you understand the gospel's grip and impact in your life, and can you clearly explain it? Pray for those doors to open up and be ready when they do. Be ready to explain the hope that we have to the successful, the high, and the meek and the lowly. Be ready. And if you're sitting there and you're fired up, you're ready to share the gospel, are you ready for opposition? Are you ready for rejection? Are you ready for relational conflict? Are you ready for physical challenges? I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to prepare you. There is a deep joy in obedience. We don't do it on our own. We do it through the Holy Spirit's power in us. And so... I would encourage, I would exhort you to dedicate your life to making the gospel known in whatever mission field God has you in. Whether that's in your own home, whether that's in your backyard, your street, your city. Others of you, I pray, will go to the ends of the earth with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So in the words of Tony Merida, he says this, grab your Bible, your passport, and your first aid kit. And make the light of the gospel known in this dark world. So may the rest of our lives 
be lived the same way uh, that we read the last verse in our passage today. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious gospel that saves and transforms, that is our only hope in life and death. God, we praise you for who you are, for what you've done throughout history, for your provision in Jesus. God, I pray that we would all respond to this message this morning. Uh, Those that don't know you, that they would know you, that they would turn and look to you, repenting and believing that you are their only hope. For those of us that do know you, God, I pray that you would give us a zeal for you, as a zeal for you, our King will give us a zeal for the mission. Pray that we would faithfully proclaim the gospel wherever we are. God, prepare us for opposition. Send us by your Holy Spirit and allow us to persevere with the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. That we can be disciples filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. God, we love you. We praise you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.